Welcome. It's Luke from TRP Podcast. Our topic today is theological foundations and politics. The relationship between theology and American politics. As you well know, if you follow the podcast for any time, the Republican Professor podcast is a resource for community and training. Okay, We're not making any money here. <laughs> it's not a commercial enterprise in that sense. It's a public service, and it's an educational resource. Um, and our tagline it has, has always been conversations on all things related to American politics. Um, anything that is related to American politics is a fair game, and uh, we make uh, fair use of a wide range of, of, of material and, and, and uh, conversations with scholars, writers, producers, um, professors, students, entrepreneurs, military veterans, and on and on, homeschool moms. <laughs> and uh, it, it's been a wonderful journey. And we're uh, delighted to have you here today. I wanted to introduce a figure uh, who was our guest today to help us think through some preliminary and foundational issues in American politics. And uh, our guest today is Helmut Thielica, professor of theology for a long time at the University of Hamburg. And Professor Tilika joins us through his teaching in Theological Ethics, Volume 2. And my copy of this was uh, purchased at uh, Old Capital Books in Monterey, California, off of Alvarado Street. Um, this copy is... Uh, published by Fortress Press. It was edited by William H. Lazarus uh, in 1969, and it's a hardcover. I highly recommend that you get a copy for yourself of this book, Theological Ethics, Volume 2, Politics. Volume 1 is his foundations book. And uh, now Helmut, uh, just to be clear, just to disambiguate, is not here with us physically. He, uh, besides the fair use of his book uh, in a transformative reading with commentary that we'll perform here, in this session of the Republican Professor. But I really want to introduce you to uh, the figure of Helmut Thielica, 
and his uh, his teachings and his career, he's quite an interesting person. I I I never met him. He died when I was a wee lad. <laughs> um, but the if if you just scroll through some of the highlights of his life, he was he had two PhDs in. Uh, one in philosophy, one in theology, and he was getting this training when Germany was going through quite a lot. And he has commentary here in here, which we'll comment upon and do a, a performative reading of. Um, he comments on two aspects of what we would call I would call extreme leftism. Now he doesn't use those terms, so that's my term, okay? But he uh, saw them as realities, and that is national socialism, and that's the term he uses for the Nazis. He says national social socialism, and he lived through that as a graduate student and as a, an early scholar. He was teaching during World War II, the run-up to World War II. And then, if you know your history, and I'm I'm really hoping that you do, but um, I mean, I just got done teaching uh, international relations at um, last semester, and I had students in there that didn't know who Richard Nixon was. And this is college. Uh, they may have heard the name, they may have thought that you're supposed to think bad things about him, but they didn't know anything. I mean, you know, so, okay, after World War II, go back to Germany, what happened? Well, within a few years, Germany was split into two countries, West Germany and East Germany. East Germany I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say it was basically a Soviet satellite. Um, and Stalin laid claim to the, the Eastern part of the country. It was a smaller section than West Germany. Um, since the British and Americans had uh, defeated the Nazis, they had uh, control of wherever they won their battles and um, Hamburg was in the east, the sorry, excuse me, the western part. Okay. So during most of Helmut Tilika's career teaching, uh, he was in West Germany. And he had occasion to think deeply about communism communist socialism so sometimes he'll reference national socialism and communism um almost as two sides of the same coin and it brings to mind um a pamphlet i had read in the 80s by uh you might think he's kind of obscure um i i don't remember quite how i came across him at the time I think he was a Mormon and his name was, his last name was Skousen. I think his name was Cleon Skousen. 
I probably should do an episode on this little pamphlet. The, the pamphlet is called um, A Study in Political Extremism, I think. And that little pamphlet, I it was the first time I was a kid when I saw it. I was a teenager, just barely getting into this stuff. And he made the claim that uh, the National Socialists, the, the Nazis, and the communists were both on the left. And that's because, well, first of all, we use words like right and left, and, and people oftentimes just kind of use these terms without really knowing what they mean. Um, and the tricky thing about that is that you can think you know what it means, but you really not thought about it for more than two seconds. So if you're forced to think about it in a, in a way that you volunteer for, in other words, you sign up for a class and you submit to the professor's um, leading. Okay. And so in that sense, you're for, you're voluntarily there, but you're maybe you, you're having a weakness of will moment and you'd rather do other things, go play beach volleyball or something like that. And so you're not, um, uh, willing in that moment to do what you signed up for, which is to think deeply. But if, if your professor pushes you to think, why do we use these terms left and right and force you to think about it for more than 10 seconds, you're probably going to come up with nothing. And that's what I do with my students. I, I, I have them confront the fact that they come up with nothing on that. And so my whole goal in that is to have a, a transformative experience for them where they're more circumspect when they hear these terms banded around. Because most likely the use of these terms by other people is just as ill thought out as their own. Um, and and Cleon Skousen in this book, and I'm not going to go through uh, that right now too much, but, but his uh, point was that there is a historical reason we use these terms. It has to do with the position of seats and I think the French parliament, but we're not France and we don't have a parliament and we don't locate our seats that way in in our legislature so what's um what gives um and and why would you have left mean one thing and and right mean another we don't do that with our hands i mean there is a there is a section of the bible small section that does reference the left as being wrong and the right being correct but um which i enjoy I enjoy trotting that one out. But Skousen says that the police state is on the left, whatever you call it. The left is a symbol of the extreme power of the state over individuals created in the image of God. And to the right, 
if you want to keep that would be anarchism, anarchy, where there is no function of government. The correct would be the correct version would be somewhere in the middle where you have the proper role of government doing what government is supposed to do, not um, an extreme on the police state side. And Nazis were a police state. And, well, the communists were police state too. Um, I have a friend named John Boswell who was in the battle Black Hawk Down, the real battle, He's mentioned in the book, uh, not in the movie, but in the book. And he sat next to me at Claremont when we were doing our PhDs together. And uh, he, he's a dear man. I, re I really, really love my dear friend, uh, John Boswell, Sergeant First Class. Well, actually, he, was, he um, retired as an E-8 in the Delta Force. And he would tell stories... Uh, it was being a little bit older than most of the PhD students there, he would tell stories of when he was first in the army before he was in the special forces. And he was stationed in Germany, West Germany, and they went to the, uh, the Iron Curtain. They went to West Berlin. Now, as you know, Berlin was in East Germany. And so it was the capital city. And so for, um, you'll love this equity and, and diversity in, uh, instead of having all communists in, in Berlin, they split it up into East Berlin and West Berlin. But there was a wall that went up separating West and East Berlin. And there was a wall separating West and East Germany. And as my friend, John Bosball used to say, uh, the guns, on the wall were pointed inward. They weren't pointed at West Germany. They were pointed at itself, East Germany, to prevent people from leaving. That Now that gives you a sense of the police state quality. And I mean, you know, he tells stories of when he went to his undergrad after being in the army for 20 years. And the, the undergrads don't know this because they didn't, well, they didn't see it for themselves, but they don't know history. Now, all that to say, Helmut Tielicke was in Hamburg, which is in West, was in West Germany. Of course, Germany has been reunited. And he died in 1986. So I got this book in Monterey and I was reading through it and I had been required to read Tilika while I was in seminary. And this is how you say uh, that name. I think it's Tilika, Helmut Tilika. Of course, I don't speak German, so I don't know. I really should uh, ask my friend, uh, Dr. Gretchen Gusich, who majored in Chaman. Uh, at the University of Notre Dame, but she's not here for me to consult on a whim. So um, we're going to do a reading from chapter uh, two, which he calls the transition from authoritarian to democratic thinking. 
Now, what this is, is, um, and as I'm going to comment, I have my Hebrew uh, Bible here, and I've got uh, a new, an English New Testament I'm going to be referring to. Um, uh, we are going to be uh, taking a look at the concept of authority in Luther and Paul, which is first section here. And as we go through this, uh, I'm going to be making comments on it. If you have questions or comments, please put them in the in the in the link in the comments. I will put a link to this book so you can buy it uh, in the description. So please do consider buying a copy. Um, I think I'll put the Amazon link in if I can. I'll put some convenient link in, hopefully. Here's Helmut Tilica. Thank you for being here, Helmut, to converse with us on the nature of theology and American politics, the, the relation there. And I know that uh, you're going to enjoy this. What links us across the Atlantic is that there are Protestant Christians and Catholic Christians, there are Eastern Orthodox Christians that uh, have an Orthodox view of the Bible's role in theology. That is that the Bible is the Word of God, and it it's useful for our thinking about American politics. And it's not just useful, it may even be an authoritative guide in certain respects and, and discerning how that would be is where I've invited Helmut Tilica to help us think through that. Here is Helmut, the concept of authority in Luther and Paul, and I'm on page seven. We can best come to grips with the difference between the situations of past and present by asking whether the concept of authority in the New Testament and in the Reformation is still pertinent and applicable in the 20th century, either in the sphere of the so-called free world. Now, this is me. He's writing during the Cold War, so he's in West Germany. When he says the free world, he means the non-communist world. Okay, Just put that comment in there. Or in that of the world controlled by totalitarian ideology. I'm going to comment here briefly. The word ideology is not a word I use, and I don't like the word. It's a huge compliment to Helmut Tilica that I'm um, go, taking his lead and letting him talk about ideology. Because I mean, you know, obviously it's a free country, but here's, a, here's Helmut again. With respect to the so-called free world, the question may be asked, in terms of the Western understanding of the democratic state is not, quote, authority, unquote, an outmoded idea, a foreign concept, alien to modern thought and no longer used except by theologians. Let me pause here and, and go back to the New Testament. 
Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. Because uh, some of you may not be uh, biblically literate, and you may not really understand directly what he's speaking about. Well, this section of Romans 13 in this translation that I have is called Submission to the Authorities, okay? And this was a letter that uh, St. Paul wrote to the Romans, the church in Rome, in the 50s, probably, of the first century. And so Paul says here, and, and sometimes we just call him Paul, uh, in chapter 13, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Verse 2, consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Verse 3, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. Verse 4, for he is God's servant to do your, you good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Verse 5, therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Verse 6, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Verse 7, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And that's the end of the passage from Romans chapter 13, St. Paul's letter to the Romans, written sometime in the 50s in the first century AD. Okay, so when Telica is talking about authority, I can guarantee you that's what he has in mind. Okay, here. In fact, he says so explicitly. And I hope that this is educationally valuable for you and useful for you. Um, you know, I'm not uh, making any money here on this. I'm, I'm doing this as a, as a public service. So, uh, by the way, if you want to financially support the podcast, pay attention to the description and really think about sending in uh, support because uh, it does help pay for things, you know, <laughs> like that we need. Um, not not profit, but just just uh, the costs of functioning. Okay, and uh, it'd be nice if we had some money for these materials, you know, because these books cost money, and um, the publishers have to, you know, publishing these days. I can't imagine it, it's a, it's a really hard thing to publish. Okay, so just think about supporting this work, because it takes a long time to get this stuff down. Now, I'm on page seven still. And so we continue. 
So going back to page seven of Telica, uh, that that passage of Paul, one of the the issues that seems to be there is the concept of authority, and the and the difference of the first century context and the current context. Um, does that undermine the teaching of Paul there, or does it does it make it irrelevant? Um, how are we to understand the concept of authority? How how ought we understand this? Um, so he says, in terms of the Western understanding of the democratic state, okay, with respect to the so-called free world, the question may be asked. In terms of the Western understanding of the democratic state, is not, quote, authority, quote, unquote, an outmoded idea, a foreign concept, alien an alien term uh, no longer used except by theologians, and that's on page seven. What is meant by the term Western there? This is me asking. Well, it's like that's another one of those left-right terms that people just throw around and they expect that you know um it it had I, I taught western heritage for over a decade at pepperdine at university in malibu and i always like to have a discussion about this with my students the term has a substantive component as well as a geographical component so it's a little bit misleading to just think it's talking about somewhere on a map. And by the way, we live on a globe. So you go that way, it's west eventually. And you go that way, it's west eventually. Um, so it's a little puzzling. But I would say, generally speaking, in relation to Israel, okay, west of Israel is oftentimes what we mean by the West. Uh, and we would be talking about the, the Northern Hemisphere, um, not the entire Northern Hemisphere. So, I mean, it's a little bit vague, but it has come to have a substantive component as well, which contradicts to some extent the geographical component. And the substantive component is the, a certain type of philosophy of government that is friendly to individual rights and responsibilities of people created in the image of God that is in uh, contrast to, for example, how Eastern Germany thought. Now, of course, Eastern Germany is west of Israel. So you can see why people might be a little bit confused. But he's writing in West Germany. So he means West in not only the West geographical part, but also the 
non-communist, you might even say anti-communist understanding of, uh, and also I would say non-national -so socialist, non-Nazi, because it was the West that was fighting that as well. If this is, I mean, we've only gotten like a paragraph here. If this is uh, heart-wrenching for you, well, let me just give you a little pet talk here. Reality is not watered down. You want me to water this down and make it simple? Reality is not simple. So some extent, the professor has to make a choice. And the choice is, do I simplify what is not simple to artificially inflate your ego and make you think you know more than you do so that I get high teaching evaluations? And in this context, it would be, I guess, a, a, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or something like that. Um, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm not interested in that at all. That's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this to help prepare you for reality. And so we're structuring it to some extent, but I'm not watering it down because reality is not watered down. And there's a lot going on here. Using these terms, I have to explain what they mean. Otherwise, what's the point? We're just going to be using words. Sounds will be coming out of our mouth, but nobody knows what it means. They don't signify anything. People make noise all the time, but they don't say anything. We're not interested in that. It's Republican Professor Podcast. This is a production for the purpose of community and training. All right, enough pep talk. With respect to the so-called free world, Tilika says, the question may be asked, in terms of the Western understanding of the democratic state, is not authority an outmoded idea, a foreign concept, alien to modern thought and no longer used except by theologians. Is the term ever found anywhere in the pages of a modern newspaper? Gustav Wingren has stated the problem excellently. The concept of authority is no longer serviceable for those who govern were formerly referred to as the authority, are today simply agents of the will of the people. They execute the will of the legislature, which itself executes the will of the voters. This is in theory. Don't laugh. Okay. <laughs> Every citizen, insofar as he is a voter, represents a partial authority. Okay, so that's Tilika quoting Wingren. Is that what Tilika believes? The difference between ruler and subject is now not one of status, but of function. This means that we no longer have two groups hierarchically and perpetually distinct in rank. Instead, 
There is only one group, the people, which both assigns the task of representation and receives directives from the representative body it has set itself set up. Did you follow that? <laughs> the very concept of representation, I'm on page eight now, indicates that it is one and the same group, which is in fact both the subject and the object of the governing. Man, I, I feel like I'm reading the Federalist Papers to some extent right now. <laughs> Where large numbers are involved, there must, of course, be this distinction between rulers and subjects. For it goes without saying that this, that so-called direct democracy, in which all members of the group order their affairs together and exercise a common will in every detail, is possible only where small and manageable numbers are involved. Beyond a certain number the group as a whole must delegate its affairs to a smaller enclave, which is capable of acting, whose action, however, will correspond at least theoretically to the will of the ruled. The very concept of representation in political affairs thus gives clear-cut expression to the fact that the subject of the governing is in effect the people that that group, which has provided for its being represented. How are you doing? Tilika again. The question how far such representation is genuine and not just a fiction cannot be discussed here. At this point, we would only point out that as far as representation, as the representation done by delegates, or we would call them congressmen or senators or um, assemblymen, uh, maybe uh, aldermen if you're in a city like Chicago, city councilmen, and so on and so forth. Um, at this point, we would only point out that as far as the representation done by delegates sent to the legislature is concerned, there is both a limitation and a disruption involved. The limitation lies in the fact that the delegate is fundamentally responsible only to his own conscience. Okay, He's talking about the elected representative the congressman, the alderman, the city councilman, the senator, the legislator, okay, maybe the president, depending on, I guess there's a legislative function of the president, for example, in the Federalist Papers. So I'll repeat that again. The limitation lies in the fact that the delegate is fundamentally responsible only to his own conscience, his task is not simply to implement the will of the people, but also to stand over against it. Which means that at times, he will have to make some rather unpopular decisions. Here again, I feel like I'm reading from the 
the, the Federalist Papers, if you know that document, we should do a reading on the Federalist Papers. I'm on page eight. The disruption can come when the delegate's representative capacity is diminished by the interposition between himself and his constituency of parties and special interest groups. Now, okay, pay attention to this. It is altogether possible that he may in fact become more functionary of a particular group than the representative of the people and take his mandate solely from the interested parties, party or parties. We shall return to this problem when we discuss the matter of distribution of powers. For the present, we shall use the term representation only in the sense of its original intentions. The autonomy of the people, which expresses itself and is at least in principle asserted in the fact of representation, implies that in the manner of matter of governing, subject and object are one and the same. Each person does both the commanding and the obeying. In order not to be subjected to the hetero heteronomy of a dictatorship or the autocracy of an absolute monarch, in order not to be ruled by others, the rule rule themselves. This personal union between ruler and rulers and ruled, I'm on page nine, which is characteristic of democracy and which through the medium of representation is divided into different functional forms, shows with almost unsurpassable clarity how questionable the older concept of authority has become. For authority seems actually to imply a distinction of status between rulers and ruled, not just a functional distinction, but a distinction of persons, and hence the very opposite of a personal union. Okay, I'm going to pause there and make some comments because this is a tr transformative reading. It's it's a commentary. We want to make a a good fair use of this of this material. I'm in Genesis and I'm looking at the Hebrew of Genesis nine, where I'm going to give you something to think about as far as what he's talking about there, in the concept of authority, the one who's ruled is the same as the ruler in the modern Western understanding of it, the concept of representation. I think that there's an interesting word here in Genesis chapter nine, verse six. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. This is understood by commentators and theologians of uh, an endorsement of the death penalty. Now, normally, we think of the death penalty being meted out 
by government, by authority, right? As distinct from the people. But it doesn't say that. It does not use the word for government as the one that does the death penalty. It uses the word Adam, which just means man. And in fact, it's also the name of the first man, Adam. In other words, the people, the people. And that's a very old understanding of a situation that existed where the people were in authority. And somehow that got distorted along the way. And how that happened is outside the bounds of this episode. But when you look at, for example, the reading we did from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 13, uh, if you look at the Greek, it says, verse 13, ch chapter 1, verse, uh, ch verse 1, chapter 13, it says, every person, every person, that's everybody. Every person must submit himself to the governing authorities. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there. Is Caesar a person? It says every person. Is Caesar a person? Yes. Yes. Caesar. Caesar is under the governing authorities as well. Now, obviously, the people reading that wouldn't have thought that wouldn't have been their first think thought because the distinction between a monarch and the subject was so ingrained, usually by terror, <laughs> that uh, I don't think people could think very clearly about it. And um, and that that's what Tilika is is bringing up is. Is we we have this it, that that is such that's such a foreign way of thinking for those of us in representative governments, supposed representative governments. But there are some puzzles about representation that he's indicated here, and uh, the Federalist Papers talks about some of this, and it, well comes come comes across the same topic, I should say. Let's continue with Telica for a bit. And um, let's see here. Let me take a drink of coffee here. I'm just trying to introduce you to some of these issues here. Because if you're never introduced to them, how are you going to think about them? How are you going to make progress in your own understanding of the deep things in politics? Is not a modern political political ethics, therefore compelled to demythologize, de as it were, the concept of authority. But if we are demyth, if we demythologize it by taking away the idea of a preeminent position bestowed by the grace of God, what is left? Is democracy indeed the end product of such a process of subtraction? Do authority and democracy really mean the same thing? 
are they simply two different historically conditioned ways of referring to the same thing, namely statehood? I, I should say, he's in a uniquely interesting position to think about this, having lived under national socialism and having lived uh, next door to the communist takeover of his home country that was basically bifurcated and in some sense destroyed by national socialism. Um, a country that used to be at heart at the heart of the so-called Holy Roman Empire, by the way, the Christian West, Christian Europe. And Tilika has two PhDs, and he's he's done a lot. I mean, maybe that is not impressive to you, but I'm telling you, that's impressive. That's very impressive. There was no grade inflation back then. If it be the case, I'm on page nine, it should be possible to transfer to the modern situation the theological substance of the concept of authority. But is that really the case? Do not the two systems of political thought vary so widely that there is no essential connection between the authoritarian state and the democratic state? Is not the difference fully as great as that as between heteronomy and autonomy? The answer to this question will have significant implications. I'm on page 10. What is at issue is ultimately the continuity of the ethical tradition. The question is whether the modern age is not so clearly outside the framework of previous history that the traditional concepts of the Western world lose their cogency in the face of the new phenomenon. To put the problem as sharply as possible, we would point out that the new understanding of the state has taken a double turn in relation to the past. In the first place, the prince was for Luther a member of the church, indeed its chief member. He stood therefore at least potentially under the pulpit. The, representat uh, the representative of the state, in other words, the authority did not only stand over against the church, he was in the church. It was this personal union between church membership and government authority which allowed Luther, for example, in writing to the Christian nobility, to address the aristocratic, aristocratic estates, not merely as representatives of government, but also as bearers of the Christian obligation. Quite apart from the question whether Luther regarded all the nobles of his day as truly Christian, his purpose was to remind the nobility that on the basis of baptism and the gospel, the prince had both the opportunity and the duty to certify his personal membership in Christ and his free rights as a Christian. This meant that in cases of extreme necessity, 
that the prince should indeed intervene in the life of the church as one of its members, not in virtue of his governmental office, but nonetheless with the authority of one who governs. Even though Luther was always skeptical as to the actual qualifications of the princes, at the very end of his treatise, he could remind the nobility that lords and rulers will be rare birds in heaven. The fact remains that the church and state are for him, for him were fused in the person of the prince. Though the concept of a Christian state was perhaps unreal, in a personal sense, there was nonetheless such a thing as a Christian representative of the state, one who could be addressed in terms of the church's claim upon him. I'm on page 11. By the way, the footnotes are fantastic, but they are mostly in German. So they're not used, I mean, I think they're fantastic because they're primary sources and they're not even translated. Like the titles are not translated. Um, he wrote this in German originally. So, okay. On page 11. One can hardly fail to see how significant this personal union was for political ethics and for the practical application of the doctrine of the two kingdoms. For since the prince was the chief member of the church, the kingdom on the left hand was not left to itself in a secular sense. On the contrary, both ontically and in terms of the ruler's own awareness, it was related to the kingdom on the right hand. I don't think he's using the terms left and right like we think of them, or put it this way, like we talk about them without thinking about them. On the contrary, uh, Okay, admittedly came within the scope of the church's proclamation. Certain theological implications of this relationship immediately suggest themselves. First, the state was constantly reminded that it was subject to the sovereign commandments of God. Hence, it could not possibly claim to be a law unto itself. Neither could it dare to make purely pragmatic considerations the measure of its conduct. Saying, for example, my country, right or wrong. <laughs> Thus limited, the state could not be autocratic, ordering things as it saw fit. On the contrary, it was always called to order itself. It could never be authoritarian in an absolute sense, for it operated itself within the bounds of an authorization marked off by the divine imperative. If the power of the prince was unlimited downwards in relation to his subjects, it was correspondingly limited upwards in relation to the authority of law. Buy this book, get a copy of it, and read along as we go through this. It makes it a lot easier if you have your own copy. The result was a situation which for the for modern thought is quite paradoxical. The unlimited authority of the ruler, whose authority could not be questioned from below, carried with it an unquestioned limitation on the authority of the state. 
institutionalism, the sheer weight of the governmental apparatus, could not make the state a law unto itself. For since the authority of the state was represented by a sovereign person, there was an accountability before God for the way it was exercised. It was thus safeguarded against the anonymity of the machine. This safeguard obviously applies only to that authority which understands itself to be authorized, as was the case where the ruler was also the chief member of the church. What is he saying here? He's saying <laughs> that in centuries past, uh, during the time of the Reformation, for example, when Luther, uh, Martin Luther, a, a scholar, uh, a Catholic and a scholar, um, protested against abuses. Um, he had occasion to think about the relationship of, of authority and political authority and, and church authority. And um, there was always a serious, real uh, limitation on government authority from God. And that was taken seriously. So you're going to see a contrast with what's coming up because he's going to talk about national socialism and communism. Okay. So keep that in mind as we go through here. And if you want me to hurry up, I'm sorry, this takes a, this takes a while. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of years. You're, ta you're talking about a, a complex phenomenon here. So have some patience, have some self-control, um, be a good student, be a true student, is what I would say. Okay. Second, I'm on page 11. Such a state was constantly reminded that it got an end, sorry, that it was not an end in itself. It had to see itself as an emergency arrangement of God in the fallen world, something which would one day be abolished. The ruler, who at least potentially was also present in the church, was told, of course, that the things that are Caesar's must be given to Caesar, but also the things that are God's must be given to God. That's from Matthew 22, 21. I'm on page 12. And that there is thus a limitation on our obligation to Caesar. Very important point. He's saying biblically, theologically, there's a limitation on government. That is absolute. It is an absolute limitation on government. So this distinction between Caesar and subject is not absolute. Caesar was wrong. 
And the nature of government, the very existence of government is not an ordinance of creation. It's an ordinance of the fall. It's a response to the fall. And it reminds you of the language in the Federalist Papers, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. What he means by that is, it's a way of talking, if the fall had never happened. He's not talking about fallen angels. Okay, so let's go back to page 12. He was also told that the governing authority must execute justice as the servant of God. That's from Romans 13.3. Be interesting to do a careful exegetical work on that passage in one episode. I, I think we should do that. In other words, as a norma normata, not a norma norm, normans. And finally, he was told that God would one day abolish all authorities and powers, 1 Corinthians 15.24. Thus did the state learn of its power and authority, but also of the limitation of its power, inasmuch as that power was something accorded to it and not inherent in it. The state was reminded of the fact that it was willed by God, but that it was willed to be only temporary and provisional. A safeguard was thus provided against a trend, which is plain enough in secularism, namely the trend toward the totalitarian state, which in its ideology posits itself as absolute. Page 12. The situation is quite different today. The state is not represented in a single person as in the case of the medieval prince. Neither is it possible to suppose, even hypothetically, that the various branches or houses of government are made of Christians. No theologian or churchman today would maintain that a state is illegitimate and unable to act unless it has at least a min minimum number of Christians at its head or professes so-called Christian principles. No church meeting or body Roman Catholic or Protestant, can, be, can address a word to the state today the way Luther did in his To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. For the estate of the ruling nobility no longer exists, not even in the British House of Lords. Neither is this, uh, the, the group which has replaced it, whether in party or government, Christian. The one to whom Luther addressed himself in that treatise has moved out, and the house in which he dwelt is now inhabited by someone who would not understand the treatise or even know what it meant for him. In asking about the double turn whereby the understanding of the state today has changed from what it once uh, was, we have come upon some difficulties which can perhaps be overcome by going back even further and shifting our attention from Luther to Paul. 
I'm on page 12 of Telico. For while Luther's concept of authority no longer seems applicable today, because there is no longer a personal union between church membership and governmental authority, Paul's concept does hold out greater hope of transferability to the present situation. Now, that's very interesting, what he just said. What he just said was that the original New Testament seems to uh, transfer to our situation in an easier way than later tradition in Luther did. And you have to understand, he's coming at this from a pro being a Protestant German theologian in West Germany. I'm on page 13. To begin with, there is no doubt that the concept of authority is to be found in Paul, particularly Romans 13, which we read. For the governing authorities, the exousia, huperxusa, that's Romans 13, 1. <laughs> Sorry. Exousia, huperexousia, exousa, that's the Greek, undoubtedly means the ruling power of the state. What makes Paul's concept seem closer to our own situation than Luther's concept is the fact that in Paul, the references to the non-Christian state of the Roman emperor. The emperor, of course, is not a member of the church. Indeed, he may well be the representative of paganism, which has to be militantly anti-Christian. Directives governing the conduct of Christians vis-a-vis -vis the state seem to have a much greater relevance to the political situation within secularism than do directives relative to medieval Christendom, even as this was affected by the Reformation. Nevertheless, there arises even here the question whether the concept of authority in Romans 13 is not now equally outdated and totally lacking an analogy to the modern situation. Be careful here. He's not saying that's what he believes. He What he's doing is he's in conversation with what people are saying. And there's a trend going back centuries in German criticism of the Bible that put distance between the Bible and our situation, saying the Bible is irrelevant, or it doesn't mean what it says, or we can't understand what it says, or some kind of deconstruction, although I'm being anachronistic with the term deconstruction. They didn't use that term. But something like that. In other words, undermining biblical Christianity in a common sense way. He, that's not what he's doing here. So be careful. Okay, He's talking to other people as if they they need to hear an answer to that. So let's hear what he has to say, page 13. Nevertheless, there arises here the question of whether the concept of authority in Romans 13 is not now equally outdated and totally lacking an analogy to the modern situation. Paul says of his authority or power that it is instituted by God. And that is hippo theo tetagmena. And that's the Greek in Romans 13, 1. 
and its authority to punish the wicked and to reward the good, that's in 13.3 and 4, is likewise ordained by God. But does not this strengthen Wingren's objection against transferring any ancient concept of authority to the modern situation? Are not the rulers of a democratic state, by virtue of the personal union between rulers and ruled, ordained by men? Are they not delegated from below rather than from above? Hmm. If this is a correct statement of how the modern democratic state understands itself, then it may be asked in return whether the Roman state did not understand itself in basically the same way, even though the authorizing power in the case of Rome was not the common man, but the imperial God-man. That's with a lowercase g. The point of comparison, at any rate, would be the negative circumstance that, according to both the ancient and the modern understanding, God is apparently not the one who does the ordaining. Apparently. That's what he says. Apparently. Is not the world really changed? And is not the change seen best in the fact that the social and political concepts of former times, such as the concept of authority, I'm on page 14, cannot be applied to the situation today? Still, the fact that neither the Roman state nor the modern democratic state has or has to have a self-understanding in terms of which it derives its power from divine ordination ought to remind us of two things. It should remind us first that we are not to dramatize the discontinuity between past and present or overlook certain constant factors. And second, it should suggest that too great importance is not to be attached to the way a particular state understands itself. For after all, this self-understanding says nothing about whether the state in fact is or is not ordained by God. It tells us only whether this ordination by God is something men do or do not acknowledge. Theologically, the true nature of the state is not determined by its self-understanding. That self-understanding simply tells us about man and his attitude toward the state. It tells us whether this true nature of the state is apparent to him or concealed from him. There's a lot there. How are you doing? There's a lot there. I love the way he writes. And this is it's such a wonderful book, Theological Ethics Politics. Um, the subtitle, by the way, is Communism, Revolution, Nuclear Weapons, War, Conscientious Objection, Welfare, Power, Law, Morality, Disobedience. Fundamental stuff. 
Page 14 continued. The statement of Paul may therefore still be true, even of a state which, like the communist state, understands itself in purely pragmatic and secular terms. Now remember, he's at the University of Hamburg, which is in West Germany at the time. He's looking across the border over there to East Germany. And that's as far as he has to look to see the communist state. It's right there. It's right in his backyard. There's a constant reminder. We only have a couple more pages for this episode. It, too, is in fact ordained by God, or at least used by him in a special way, and hence permitted. The fact that Pharaoh is obdurant, obdurate, <laughs> obdurate, in the face of the plagues, does not perceive the divine, and does not perceive the divine visitation, that's from Exodus 5, 2, 7, 3, 8, 15, 10, 1, does not alter in the least the fact of the visitation. If Christ gathers men as a hen gathers her brood, from Matthew 23, 37, yet men do not understand his call, and if God sends the autumn rain and the spring rain as a sign, from Jeremiah 5, 24, yet the people fail to discern the sign, from Matthew 11, 16 through 24, 16, 1 through 4, 8, uh, verses 8 and 9, Romans 1, 19 through 20, this does not alter the source and background of that sign. Cognitive failure cannot annul ontic fact. Cognitive failure cannot annul ontic fact. Similarly, the state does not have does not cease to be ontically an institution of divine grace when men cease to discern its theological background. The theological meaning of the state is not determined by how men understand it. It stands firm and unshakable while man's understanding of it fluctuates and changes, approximating it only to greater and lesser degrees. Just as faith does not affect or unbelief nullify the existence of God, just as faith and unbelief merely signify man's acceptance or rejection of a fact, so the Christian or the atheistic self-understanding of a state cannot at all affect its theological reality. And that is, as a re recall, is a response by God to the fall of mankind. Genesis 3 evil in the world, the presence of evil, restraining evil. What's he saying? What he's saying is the communist state has the purpose of restraining evil just as much as the West German state does as a theological foundation for its existence, whether you acknowledge it or not. Whether the communists acknowledge God or not, they don't acknowledge God. And actually, a lot of people in West Germany don't acknowledge God. He's saying the self-understanding of 
people in that country don't affect the reality that there's a purpose to government and it's being abused and misused. This is why Paul describes the state. This is back to Telic on page 14. This is why Paul describes the state of the Caesars as instituted by God, even though it understood itself quite differently. This is also why in Revelation 13, which I love that he does this, Revelation 13, the state of the demonic imperial illusion is integrated into a divinely affected event of salvation and judgment of which the state itself has no inkling. On page 15, we must probe a little deeper, however, into the self-understanding of the modern democratic state. We granted for a moment that this state seems to think, or could conceivably think, that it is ordained not by God, but by, by the people. Now there can be no doubt that such a self-understanding is possible. There can, be, uh, there can obviously be atheistic democracies. But the question is whether such a self-understanding is also necessary. Are we really confronted here by an atheistic understanding? Oh, sorry. Are we really confronted here by an atheistic either or? Only if one assumes that the democratic state seriously believes its commissioning by the people to mean it also, also its creation by the people. If this be the case, the either or is indeed authentic. For this would mean that a human creator has supplanted the divine creator. The question may thus be put as follows. Does a democratic understanding of the state necessarily lead to this change in the role of creator? In other words, is not a commissioning of the state by the people something radically different from its creation by the people? Indeed, does not the commissioning actually presuppose an existing reality with reference to which the commission is given? That's a deep point. Would it not therefore be altogether possible to combine the idea of a divinely instituted state with that of a commissioning by the people? It is evident from these obviously rhetorical questions that the older authoritarian state and the modern democratic state have, or at least can have, a common root. Even on a philosophical view of the state, it is evident that though it is upheld by the will of its citizens and acts in harmony with their ethical autonomy, their vital interests, the state is not simply a product of their own making. Page 15. Even the, cont uh, the contract idea of Kant and Fichte does not mean that the state derives from or is constituted by such a contract. 
it simply means that the contract formula effectively describes the primal phenomenon of human life and society with its attendant relationships of superordination and subordination. Within uh, what in philosophy is a datum that transcends man? Pardon me, I, I need to take a, another sip of coffee here. We're getting toward the end here. Okay, page 15. What in philosophy is a datum that transcends man and is not preceded by him is inter interpreted theologically as an ordinance of the will of God. This theological notion that the state is an ordinance of God, a mode of his rule in the kingdom, on the left hand, does not refer only to authoritarian states like those of the Roman Empire or of medieval feudalism. On the contrary, I'm on page 16, it is immediately transferable to the modern democracies as well, for what it refers to is statehood as such. The particular historical illustrations which Paul and Luther may have used, the states known to them, are not to be confused with the matter itself. Okay, remember, this is me, not Helmut Tielica, this is me, commenting, fair use, transformative, performative reading of him for educational purposes, for community and training, okay? Which is what the Republican Professor Podcast is about. It's about having uh, non-watered down conversations about anything related to American politics. And if you're paying attention, this is all related to American politics, okay? How so we can't say every single thread but Paul in Romans 13 was familiar with a secular pagan authoritarian government that um, pretended to have the rule of law and in some ways approached the rule of law if the rule of law can be said to be a goal or an end of government, of good government. Okay. It was maybe further along that continuum than um, other ancient monarchies or democracies. Luther, writing much later, 1,500 years later, in, in uh, late, or you might say late medieval the, the very edge of the, the medieval heritage of, of Germany, where uh, Protestantism was being developed, okay? Which is just biblical theology. It's just, it's, a, it's an ancient Christianity applied to Europe in 1500s, okay? He understood the monarchy, the Christian monarchy, to be a, a point of contact for, for biblical understanding of the state. 
in, in the same way, the same common root of statehood that Paul was familiar with, thinking of the ancient Roman imperial, early imperial life, okay? If you want to call it life. Okay? The particular historical illustrations which Paul and Luther may have used, the states known to them, are not to be confused with the matter itself, which is statehood as such. How then, this is page 16, does this basic concept of statehood as such look when transferred to the situation of the modern democracy? We are now in a position to trace, or more precisely, to construct, I don't like that term, this line of transferal. Our task is to establish the ultimate reference and sanction in Luther's sense of the democratic state, that state in which authority is exercised by the citizens rather than by a hereditary monarch, to put it in popular, if somewhat misleading terms, the question is, given his view of authority, what would Luther have to say about modern democracy? Whether or not this constructive exercise is legitimate will depend on what comes out of it. And the next part he has on page 15, starting on page 15, a, a section that goes to the rest of the chapter called Divine Creation and Human Control in Government. And this, this is so we've only gotten halfway through roughly, a little bit more than halfway through his first chapter, uh, sorry, his second chapter from authoritarian to democratic thinking. And, you know, a big thing to take away from this, I'm sure you're thinking about a lot of things right now, but how does this relate to American politics? His discussion of representation, his discussion of statehood itself, his discussion of the provisional nature, theologically, of the state, uh, and the fact that people routinely misunderstand this or may they do not apprehend it but it doesn't that fact cognitive failure does not deny it does not uh cancel out ontic reality I forget how he said it how did he say it he said um cognitive that was such a great great quote Cognitive failure cannot annul ontic fact on page 14. There is a, a, a godly understanding of government to restrain human evils where he's going. Now, his next chapter is called Ideological Tyranny. And again, I hate the word ideology. I don't use it. Uh, I do use the word tyranny, and the word tyranny is in the Federalist Papers, and and it's a major understanding of how we get the Constitution, why we have the Declaration of Independence. Um, so it's interesting to see what a German will have to say about tyranny, a German who lived under Hitler, 
a German who lived next door to Stalin-controlled communist East Germany and and the whole mess that that was. And um, and then the mess of self-government in the so-called West, uh, a, a West which increasingly is, is, is unaware of the divine purpose of government. Um, as it's as it should be, as an absolute check. In other words, as a standard by which to understand good government from bad government. It's where we're all headed. It's where we're all headed. There's a theological component to this. They might be thinking, well, what if I don't believe in God? Well, okay. We're getting to his comments about what if you don't believe in God and and the godless totalitarian tendencies in, in the state. And he has a lot to say about, you know, I, I think that it's there even if there is belief in God. I, I think that the fall has so conditioned us that we have a totalitarian and authoritarian tendency that the state has this, even when it's representative of the people. It's the statehood itself which has this flawed characteristic. And again, it's the state itself which is designed, well, instituted, ordained by God to control evil. And it also has the tendency to become evil itself, become a, a predator a criminal itself. Now, let's wrap this up by going back to Romans 13. I mean, if you're reading this, and if you read like, you know, scholarly commentaries, I think Doug Moo's commentary is a good one. I, I think um, uh, Cranfield's commentary is a good one. I, I have Cranfield in... in hard copy. I, I got one of those before they became really expensive. Um, you know, Cranfield, uh, for example, takes a look at Romans 13 and he has to say, this looks as if Paul, one reading of it is if it's if, as if Paul doesn't seem to know how deeply flawed and in some cases evil government is. But I think that there's got to be something else going on there. Um, take, for example, his verse three, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. Other translations say, do what is good, and you will be praised. Well, let me just ask you a question. Well, let's, let's just take this as the authoritative word of God just hypothetically, okay? I believe it is, but if you don't, just hypothetically go along with what I'm saying. Is it really true that if you do what is good, you will be praised by the government? Take, for example, when John MacArthur opened his church after it was shut down in 2020. That was good. That was right. Yes or no, was John MacArthur praised by the government? Yes or no? 
Uh, no. Does that mean that Paul is wrong? If your interpretation of Romans 13 makes Paul wrong, and Romans 13 is inspired and inerrant and authoritative, your interpretation is wrong. That's something for you to think about. Thanks for joining me here on the Republican Professor podcast. And let's give Helmut Thielica a hand here. Thank you, Helmut, for being with us. Thank you. And we look forward to continuing with Helmut in the next uh, episode, where we'll talk more about from authoritarian to democratic thinking. And we're, where we're going is ideology, tyranny, and propaganda. We'll talk to you next time.